Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 21 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And guess what, guys? We're free now. We're free because the government says we can be free, because that's how it works in Joe Biden's America. So I'm sure you have all heard the wonderful news. As of last Thursday, May 13th, the CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, has announced that the mask mandate is partially lifted in a fairly significant way. That specifically, if you have been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask pretty much ever. You don't have to wear a mask indoors. You don't have to wear a mask outdoors. You don't have to wear, you don't have to social distance. You don't have to, like a Dr. Seuss book, you don't have to wear a mask on a boat. You don't have to wear a mask on a bus. But uh, there are still some exceptions, of course. Apparently, you still have to wear them on planes because why not? And of course, this ostensibly applies to vaccinated people only, which realistically anybody can lie about that. Let's be honest. I actually did kind of put this to the test the very next day. So Friday, I went to a pizzeria for lunch and I go in and there's a sign on the door, a very Jim Crow style sign that says no mask, no entry. And I waltz right on in with no mask. I go right up to the register. There's nobody else in line. I start placing my order and the, the young girl there just starts uh, taking my order. And then behind her, at a certain point while I'm taking the order, uh, suddenly kind of looming behind her kind of passive-aggressively is a slightly older girl, still young but clearly older, who kind of eventually is looking at me, then eventually mimes the uh, the gesture for uh, putting a mask on. And then she says to me, like, Sarah, can you please put a face covering on? And I just smile very big. I, I kind of chuckle a little. I'm like, no, 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 it's good. The CDC says we don't have to do that anymore. And I'm vaccinated, which is a lie, of course. I'm never going to get the vaccine. But... You can lie about it because they're not going to ask you to present any proof. So I tell them, oh, I've been vaccinated. And she just shakes her head and she's like, yeah, well, no, but but that that that's our rule. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The government says we don't have to get vaccinated. We don't have to wear masks anymore. The government says I don't have to wear a mask anymore. So I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And I smile. And she's just like, yeah, well, nobody knows that. And I just shrug and I'm like, well, I know that. So then I went right back to placing my order and she just kind of gave up and walked away and they finished taking my order and they served me with uh with no further complaints after that so it's really easy that basically is a green light i and of course i know some some of my friends told me you shouldn't even have to say the government said that bro you know that's conceding their point i'm like no i want to use their own non-logic on themselves i want to use that as a bulletproof argument that they you know, people who are all trust the cdc saint anthony fauci must be trusted now have no leg to stand on anymore. So it's really easy at this point to just push back on that even more so than before. Again, I was never wearing a mask, not once in my entire time, ever since this started on the Metro, nowhere. I was never wearing a mask, but now I have a legitimate excuse to not do so. So let's see how that goes. So of course, following the announcement from the government, from the CDC, a numerous various chains, particularly grocery stores, followed suit that they were going to lift their mask mandates. Trader Joe's was the first big one. They were followed shortly after by Walmart and Costco. Target initially said they would keep it, and then they reversed it as well. But this is a problem. First off, this is actually one more problem. There are some businesses that are still going to have mask mandates in place. Some locations of Costco in California, for example, are adhering to state law. You know, they're following the California law rather than the national law. And some places will still require it. So this is one more thing, actually, if anything. I think this ties back to, you know, like the big tech argument or the vaccine passports thing. Biden can now throw up his hands and claim plausible deniability and say, oh, well, we lifted the mask mandate. But if a, if, if a private business wants to keep it, well, who are we to tell them otherwise? So that's going to be another this, that's just going to be a whole other issue that's going to drag on for a little while, I think, because some businesses, again, can afford to lose that money. And they'd rather virtue signal and keep the masks in place because masks really are a new fashion trend for the left. You know, someone once said, someone else said that the uh, the masks are the new MAGA hat of the left, basically. It's the thing that they wear to show political compliance and political obedience. 
But the real problem with this, this is all about politics. It's just so obvious why this decision was made now, because nothing changed. Nothing really changed in the science or the process of rolling out the vaccines. This seems kind of random, and that's because it is from a scientific standpoint. John Nolte at Breitbart had a great piece on this very subject titled Joe Biden's shift on masks is based on failure and panic. And he puts it very well in the article. He basically says that this decision this, to finally lift the mask mandate, at least partially, but again, as I said before, it could basically be seen as a complete lifting. It was Biden's break in case of emergency glass. This was the secret weapon. This was the Uno draw four wild card that he was waiting on this entire time when you have an otherwise really bad hand. Because look at everything else going on right now. You had a horrible jobs report in the month of April where they projected almost 1 million jobs to be created. And we ended up at 266,000, a shortfall of 700,000, one of the worst economic miscalculations in modern history. You have the gas crisis. We have these shortages in gas, spiking gas prices to go with it. Over 1,000 gas stations across the East Coast and the Southeast have completely run out of gas. In Richmond, Virginia, gas hit $7 a gallon, which even by my Californian standards, that's like, whoa, that we're, we're used to like $5 a gallon, but seven, that is actually quite terrifying you have of course the border crisis hundreds of thousands of illegals just flooding over the border because by because biden told them to and it's not getting any better and he's now diverting government funds to help these illegals by the way and yeah you have the middle east which is totally on fire right now so everything going on people are jokingly saying that this is like a, a terrible 2021 remake of the jimmy carter presidency which so far it absolutely is on steroids and at a much faster pace jimmy carter's presidency did not fall apart this quickly um so this was the, this is obviously the reason why he chose to do this so that people can distract from this can, can be distracted from everything else and say oh look the mask mandates are coming off this is proof that biden is doing a great job and you know that biden's lapdogs in the media will do exactly that they will push this and focus entirely on this because it makes biden look good I saw a tweet from uh, Mike Cernovich the other day, or excuse me, Mike Thernovich the other day, where he, um, and I don't like Mike Cernovich. I don't like quoting him. I really, I would rather not cite anything he says or does because he's just a total contrarian like Ann Coulter who became anti-Trump when it was hip to do so. But he said it pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. He said, I don't even like Trump, but you have to admit that from an objective standpoint, Biden's first 100 days in office are a complete failure. And some of the top response tweets, which were obviously the leftists countering him, all they were all saying pretty much the same thing they were saying but biden's doing a great job on COVID, and that's all i care about and i'm like yeah that that is the leftist mentality that's all they care about they couldn't care less about the middle east or a gas crisis or horrible jobs numbers or whatever they're going to continue to push this because that's what they're going to make biden's entire legacy about that and being the guy who beat donald trump so let's see how long this plays out uh, you could certainly argue he blew this load pretty early because you still got a lot of time to go between now and the midterms and a lot more potential crises that could unfold between now and then so we'll see if this good faith effort or not good faith but this attempt at good faith with the voters will last long enough and have the effect that biden hopes it will you know i really feel sorry for the people who had to be told by the cdc that if you're vaccinated you can go without a mask outside that's that's really sad it's really sad that people actually had to be told by the centers for disease control that if you've already been inoculated against the disease that you can't catch it if you're outside because these people around this area, they were literally walking around. They kept the masks on, even though most everyone was getting vaccinated who wanted to get vaccinated. Oh, yeah. Around here, like what that woman at the pizzeria said to me, nobody knows about that CDC announcement. I'm willing to believe that is probably true in a lot of areas of the country. But around here, literally the swamp capital of the world, D.C. and the suburbs of Virginia that are basically an extension of D.C., where all the deep state swamp rats and bureaucrats who are – and 
those who run the regulations and enforce these kinds of laws, they know about what the CDC said. But well, you would not know they, it walking around here. Of course, because they base every action that they take during COVID based on what the CDC says. Even common sense things like not wearing a mask while you're walking your dog in the middle of the woods. Not, wearing your mask in your car alone. Right, exactly. Or wearing a mask uh, while you're biking down a bike path around no one else. It's kind of like when Matthew McConaughey took a picture when he was, I think he was on a beach and there was nobody within 100 yards of where he was standing, or at least other than the photographer who was like 100 feet back, and he's got a mask on. And it's just it, – like you said, it, it really is a fashion trend with the left. They've got to show that they are part of the enlightened elite, that they follow the science, unlike these rubes who actually know that if you get vaccinated, you don't have to keep wearing a mask because you can't catch the disease anymore. At least you're not going to experience the, the worst of the, the worst parts of the disease if you happen to catch it. Um, so they, you know, people who actually want to get back to normal, they see the mask going away as detrimental to their virtue signaling. Because I guarantee you there's a lot of people – and in fact, whenever the CDC put out the notification that, hey, you don't have to wear a mask if you've been vaccinated, they got a lot of pushback from it. There were people who were genuinely angry that the CDC was telling them that if they've been – if they've had their shot, they can take their mask down because now this was going to completely destroy their ability to show that they are part of the elite. Yeah, it's just it's, – I find it I find it funny how you still see people walking around outside by themselves around no one else still wearing the mask. It's just – it's kind of sad because, I mean, even back before the vaccination came out, you can't really catch COVID outside anyway. And no. you especially can't catch it if you're not within 10 feet of another person. You're by yourself, walking your dog, wearing a mask. That's just for show. That's You're not actually protecting yourself. As but, uh, if I needed one more reason to believe that the possible 2022 uh Texas gubernatorial matchup between uh, Greg Abbott and Matthew McConaughey would already be a tough choice. Now I really don't know which one of those two I would support if I could vote between <laughs> one or the other because I like Matthew McConaughey a lot, but to find out that he is a mask sig virtue signaling loser is definitely between that and the guy who tries to ban successful alternative social media platforms like Gab. That is that I I feel sorry for Texas voters who have to make that choice in November next year. Well, I mean, we don't have much much better choice here in Virginia, as we talked about last episode. So That is true, unfortunately. That is true. Between the Republican who supports the SPLC and the NAACP with his own financial donations or the Clinton stooge, one of the top Clinton stooges in the country. So oh, 2022 is going to be a fun year, right, guys? Well, moving on to foreign policy, uh, that seems to be all anybody wants to talk about right now anyways in the media. But not the story that everyone's thinking of. Yes, where we are, we are actually going to skip the Israel-Palestine war going on over there. We're going to let Breitbart continue to cover that. So we're going to talk about Colombia today. For those of you that don't know, Colombia is experiencing riots nonstop as we speak. In fact, the riots that have been going on for the past, I believe it's been about a week or so, a week or two weeks, they've been going on actually – no, longer than that. April 28th was when their president, Ivan Duque, introduced a tax reform that would have squeezed an already pandemic where – actually, uh, it's been longer than that. April 28th was when their president, Ivan Duque, introduced a tax reform that would have taxed middle-income people in Colombia, and that sparked off these protests. So this oh. has actually been going on for close to three weeks now. So they're legitimate protests. They didn't, like, lose a soccer championship or something? Well, yeah, yeah. So that's that would be a reason to ride in Colombia, I guess. But the thing is, the thing with this is, so yeah, it's, it is a legitimate concern that they had because they have been hit pretty hard by the pandemic. Um, Latin America as a whole has been hit pretty hard by the pandemic. But so yeah, he's introducing a tax. It's going to hit middle income people. It's going to hit 
uh, the the poor um, elements of society. So this was something that even people in his own party, he's in a he's a part of a center right party. So he's more of a classical liberal. So obviously the leftist party came down hard against that. People in his own party they came out against that, and this sparked mass protests across Colombia. Well, he actually withdrew this reform, this tax reform, four days later because of the protests and because of the opposition he got even from with, with his even from within his own party. But that didn't stop the protest. In fact, the protest intensified. So their original reason for getting out in the streets was completely gone. He decided to scrap the tax proposal, said, OK, all right, I'm not going to we're not going to pass that law. But they just kept coming. They kept coming night after night, day after day, continual violence. And when I say continual violence, uh, we're talking about over 50 people have been murdered. Over 500, over 1,500 people just as of May 13th, have so, been injured. So murdered by, like, other rioters or by the government? By the by the rioters. Oh, they, goodness. So yeah, basically they, kind of the equivalent of the race riots we saw last year, kind yeah, of? Yeah, this is, this is actually far, far worse than anything that we saw last summer. They have been, they've been trying to burn police officers alive. They've been trying to burn down police precincts. They have been, they have actually been blocking highways to stop food and medical supplies from reaching villages and towns in order to starve the population out. Yeah, just like the anarcho-communists. Good. Great to know that this is not just a uniquely American problem anymore. Correct. So this has been this has been continually waging on, and the, the government has already withdrawn. Like I said, this was issued April 28th is when their president issued this tax reform plan. He withdrew it th- four days later, so that would have been May 2nd. So this has been going on now for more than two weeks after he already decided to scrap the plan. So this is a report from the Center for a Secure Free Society that they dug a little bit beneath the surface to find out where all this violence is coming from, where these protests are coming from. So this is written by Joseph Humire. The current protests in Colombia are not just a socioeconomic crisis. They represent a broader crisis with political legitimacy of state institutions, part of a concerted effort to weaken democracy and the rule of law in the region. The Colombian people, especially the peaceful protesters, are not the culprits in this crisis. They are the victims. In other words, they are the useful idiots who are being used and who are being victimized by their puppet masters to spark what is essentially a revolution, a violent revolution. As some of the most vulnerable people in society, the poor and middle class in Colombia are targeted as tools of asymmetric warfare by adversaries, foreign and domestic. This is a threat Colombia cannot solve. It requires a more comprehensive effort in democratic forces region wide to understand that as goes Colombia, so goes the rest of America. Colombia, of course, is the largest Spanish speaking country in South America with about 53 million people. Colombia's defense minister, Diego Milano, reported on May 3rd that at least six criminal groups were behind the acts of vandalism and violence in Colombia, subverting the otherwise peaceful protests. Among others, Minister Milano mentioned the dissidents of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, as most people know. The FARC, of course, is the international, uh, the international drug trafficking organization that, was, that waged civil war against the Colombian government for so many decades. But there's a, there's a splinter group known as FARC-D, known as the FARC dissidents. These are people who refuse to go along with the ceasefire, and they're continually uh, essentially waging guerrilla warfare against the government. So uh, of the six groups, they were part of FARC-D, the National Liberation Army, or the ELN, and the Blue and Black Shields of of the M19 youth youth movement. This sounds like like, uh, an MS-13 type thing. Then on May 8th, Defense Minister Milano announced that Colombian authorities arrested a local ELN urban front commander, and days later, a dissident of the FARC, who were reportedly provoking violence in the city of Cali, which is the third largest city in Colombia, through improvised weapons and coordinating with militant youth groups and unidentified Venezuelans. 
Wait, Venezuelans? Colombia experienced similar protests with less intensity in November 2019 and September 2020, where militant youth groups were identified for subverting the protests and escalating violence and vandalism. So this is, keep in mind, this is year three that Colombia has gone through this. In the lead up to the 2019 protests in Colombia, a subtle warning was sent by Maduro's regime strongman Diosdado Cabello, who referred to the protest as a Bolivarian breeze flowing from Venezuela. On April 7th, prior to the current protest, Diosdado Cabello once again issued a veiled threat to Colombia on his nightly television program, Masodando, stating, which is uh, roughly translated as like throwing the mallet, stating, uh, I think hammer and sickle, stating, we are going to wage war on your territory, talking about Colombia's territory. Now, keep in mind, this is actually, this is a government official talking here. In response to perceived potential aggression against the Venezuelan regime, this asymmetric warfare has now arrived in Colombia. So what does the author mean by asymmetric warfare? In November 2004, Hugo Chavez directed the National Armed Forces of Venezuela to develop a new defense doctrine for contemporary conflict through a document called the Strategic Map. And what this did is it reorganized Venezuela's territory based on military territories. So a military, it was like a military defense strategy. So it reorganized Venezuela's current jurisdictional regions that actually, if you look at the map, and we're going to include a link to this in the description. If you look at the reorganized map, it shows that it's per, it was very obviously intended as an offensive, not a de defensive measure, but an offensive measure toward Colombia. Chavez claimed that this new asymmetric warfare or this new asymmetrical warfare strategy would, quote, break the chains of Venezuela's old conservative imperial and colonial geography. Not of Venezuela's old conservative imperial institutions, but of its geography. So what does that sound like? Sounds like he wants to change the borders of Venezuela. Sounds like when he says Venezuela, he has something much greater in mind than the current borders of the nation. Correct. Sounds it sounds a little bit uh, like some guy with a really bad mustache in the 1930s. Yes, yes. Sound, uh, yeah, a lot of in a lot of people in uh, like 100 years ago in Europe and during the age of nationalism, they wanted or 100 even go before that, they wanted to create a greater Bulgaria, a greater Romania, a greater Hungary based on the territorial borders of their country hundreds of thousands of years ago. Between 2013 and 2015, Nicolas Maduro expanded this asymmetric integrated defense structure to eight regions, 28 zones, and 99 areas, becoming the new mapmaker-in-chief as Venezuela's military embedded with, the, with transnational criminal organizations in Colombia and elsewhere. In 2020, Maduro added two new temporal zones, and this past March added one more along the Colombian-Venezuelan border, where his military is engaged in combat operations against the FARC-D fighters led by Miguel Botaches San Santillana, alias Gentil Duarte, and its control of the cross-border drug trade. So you think, okay, so FARC-D is fighting with the Venezuelans. This should be good for Colombia because Colombia, they could ally with Maduro and you know snuff out FARC-D. But what this does is it allows Venezuela to amass forces on its border with Colombia. In southwest Colombia, the port of Buenaventura is the most strategic port for these cross-border criminal organizations because of its location along the Middle Pacific coastline in Colombia, which allows containers with illicit products to reach almost anywhere in the world with minimal risk of detection. When the current protest broke out, it was Cali, the third largest city, as I mentioned, in the country, which is slightly more than two hours from the Buenaventura port that experienced the highest levels of violence and vandalism. On May 5th, right in the middle of these protests, right at the height of these protests, the FANB, which is the Bolivarian Armed Forces of Venezuela, their official press account on Twitter posted an image of a map of the Captaincy General. 
The Captaincy General is a throwback to the Kingdom of Venezuela during colonial times in the 18th century. If you take a look at this map, it actually includes a huge chunk of Colombia. But not only Colombia, it includes portions of Brazil. It includes portions of Guyana. The Venezuelan army isn't even trying to hide the fact that that is their goal for a greater Venezuela, for a bigger Venezuela to expand their territory. Lemuria writes, the Venezuelan regime has prepared for decades for this exact moment when the Colombian state is at its weakest. And they have an asymmetric strategy to use illicit networks as a 21st century vanguard to conquer more territory of its neighbor. But first, the Bolivarian Revolution needs to capitalize on the current unrest in Colombia by amplifying disinformation and misinformation that cause confusion and so social divisions within Colombian society. The author mentions that even protests in the United States in the summer of 2020 had strikingly similar, similar disinformation tactics and common iconography from the 2019 protests in South America. And But I remember watching a live stream of one of the protests in Washington, D.C. in June, and the guy who was streaming... You could tell from his accent, he had a Spanish accent, and he was promoting the Maduro regime. He was arguing that the United States needs to adopt a regime that is similar to China or similar to Venezuela because by doing so, it will help people at the bottom of the, of the economic ladder. It'll help poor people. It'll help those who have been uh, historically oppressed by colonialism rise to the top and gain dignity and respect. And I'm thinking to myself, none of this has anything to do with Black Lives Matter. It has nothing nope. to do with Breonna Taylor, because this was a like the, this was kind of the theme of this BLM protest at this point was over Breonna Taylor. And I'm thinking this has nothing to do with Breonna Taylor. You've got this foreigner who who is on the streets of Washington D.C. live streaming on social media. He's embedded in this American protest, and he's arguing that we need to overthrow the United States government and adopt a government similar to China and Venezuela. So what you're telling me basically is that for as cringe as the Republican Party's obsessive focus on socialism and Venezuela normally is, are, are you telling me they may actually be onto something after all? Well, I, I would disagree <laughs> with that just because their their obsession with that, the Republican Party's obsession, obsession with that isn't necessarily in self-defense. Their obsession with Venezuela and socialist countries like China is more in the neocon legacy in, in the sense that they want to overthrow those regimes. And they still – yeah, they still haven't moved on from the Cold War basically. So, yeah, so they, can bring, so they can bring freedom and liberty to the Venezuelan people and the Chinese people without actually taking into consideration how our own freedom at home is threatened when you have foreign actors who are able to infiltrate social movements like Black Lives Matter and cause disruption in our own country. Right. They Basically, they don't really want to overthrow Venezuela because Venezuela is trying to subvert our democracy and subvert protest movements here in the United States. They want to overthrow it just because, you know, we – Shining we, city on the hill. We, we got to spend money somewhere, that military industrial complex money somewhere, basically. The wave of 2019 protests that rocked Ecuador, Chile, and Colombia made it increasingly clear that some level of coordination was taking place in the region. That coordination, however, is in the cyber domain, where sophisticated click farms and net centers in distant territories from social media with bots and troll accounts exacerbating the protests and spreading false narratives. One study of 7.6 million digital interactions related to the Colombian and Chile protests of 2019, digital forensic anal analysts found that less than 1% of users generated more than 30% of the content, with the majority of the counts geolocated in Venezuela. Another study of 4.8 million tweets between October 20th and November 5th, 2019, discovered that a large cluster of the hashtags in favor of the protest in Chile originated in Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba. On December 11th, 2019, during the anniversary event of the Colombian Customs Authority, Vice President Marta Lucia Ramirez suggested that at least part of the social media traffic that fueled the protests in Colombia were projected out of Venezuela and Russia. Okay, so remember I mentioned Colombia has about 53 million people. 
almost three quarters of the country are connected to the internet. So this isn't a backwards third world country. They are highly connected to the internet. They are, most of the country is fairly advanced technological, uh, technologically. And most of these people are connected to the internet through smartphones. Of the 10 daily hours that Colombians average on the internet, four of them are spent on social media. That's that's a high, that's a lot of internet usage. Sounds about maybe on par with, you know, the, the Twitter left here in America, I would say. Yeah, but for them, it's almost the entire country, which makes them ripe for exploitation by foreign actors. Because you, can you imagine if the if the entire country was made up of the demographic that makes up Washington D.C.? Oh that God! Would be, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this please is, don't make me think of something like that. This is essentially what we're thinking, what we're considering here. So when you've got people, you got three quarters of the country that is connected to the internet, most uh, most through smartphones. They spend ten hours a day on the internet, four hours a day on social media. This shows how susceptible they are to foreign influence, and then the author argues that the Colombian authorities need to put a little bit more urgency on the digital manipulation, disinformation that's spurring these protests. According to a data mining firm based in Miami, more than 7,000 troll accounts on social media are actively engaged in the current Colombia protest. The troll accounts are, according to the firm, aimed at blocking and spamming any comments or posts critical of the protest while amplifying specific narratives and hashtags such as hashtag nos estando matando, they are killing us, that show only one aspect of the on-the-ground reality in Colombia. Uh, what does this remind you of, Eric? You got a troll farm that's aimed with 7,000 accounts that's aimed at blocking and spamming any comments or posts critical of the protest while amplifying specific narratives and hashtags. Um, that sounds to me like this super cringe trend that was happening last year. It's died down, thankfully, but this ridiculous trend where anytime on Twitter a conservative hashtag would get trending like Trump 2020 or MAGA or whatever, a whole bunch of gay losers would hijack that hashtag and just spam pictures or gifs of gay Korean pop stars. And, this, they, and they were called uh, the K-pop stands. Right. This started whenever conservatives were trying to fight back on Twitter at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement when they were uh, putting in – when they were trying to get hashtags like All Lives Matter trending. So All Lives Matter would trend. You'd click on the trend and it would be all these bots that, who are these K-pop stands. And this is Where, a, who are not real people, obviously, because no living person with an IQ above 20 would actually be a fan of K-pop. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm afraid they were real people because we've got what, what's apparently happening, at least if, if this is a similar situation here. So these are people who apparently all they do is focus on these particular protests. They zero in on particular protests and they make sure they take over any hashtags that are critical of the protest. So that way, social media cannot you, uh, people who are conservative who don't want their country being burned to the ground, they cannot organize on social media because any hashtag they try to get trending is immediately hijacked. I mean, seven, imagine what you could do if you had 7,000 people, an army of 7,000 people that was doing nothing but supporting a protest in a foreign country. They could completely dominate the trends on Twitter. It doesn't, it doesn't really take that many because if you look at a lot of trending topics on Twitter, many times they have less than 7,000 tweets about that particular topic, but it they still get it trending. It doesn't take a lot of people to get a topic trending. That most of these these people who are getting the hashtag nos están matando are based in Bangladesh, uh, Mexico. Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. The, the people who are invested in what's happening in Colombia. And Venezuela. And with servers most likely run out of Russia and or China. What these accounts will do is they'll bring up images and videos of the protest in Colombia completely taken out of context. And this is what we saw whenever the Democrats presented their video in the trial of Trump's second impeachment. 
they sh they would take video clips that weren't even from the day of the protest and make it look like it was all on the same day of the protest. So, for instance, they took video clips and images from all three Stop the Steal rallies, and they took the most damaging video footage they could, and they meshed it all together to make it look like all of that happened on the same day because the average viewer who wasn't at these protests and wasn't paying attention, they don't know any different. Okay, so these troll accounts, they're taking images and footage from different aspects of the protest, lumping it together, doctoring the footage, and making it look like it's happening in real time. Another thing that they're doing is they're taking instances of police brutality, so images and videos of police brutality from around the world, and they're making it look like it's, it's happening in Colombia because they include the Colombia hashtags, and they also talk about the protests going on in Colombia. So the average Colombian who's sitting on social media, Facebook or Twitter or wherever, they're seeing images of police brutally beating innocent protesters. And the poster is making it sound like it's in Colombia. So they but it's in like the Philippines or It something. could be in the Philippines. It could be anywhere. They, and the user is naturally enraged at his country and his police system. And then the hashtag, they are killing us, is coming across on Twitter. So the average user is thinking, wow, I didn't realize I lived in a country like this. I hate this country. We need to get out in the streets and do something about it. I saw a similar instance uh, recently with the current Israeli-Palestinian situation going on. It showed a bunch of people sitting around and these soldiers – who were had him at gunpoint, and this one woman gets up and starts yelling at the soldier and slaps him. He knocks her on the ground and kills her. And it, they were making the people on Twitter making it look like this. Look at what this Israeli soldier did. And a bunch of people finally came into the comment section. They're saying, well, "This this is from years ago. This didn't happen. This these aren't even Israelis and Palestinians." But you know, if they weren't inundated by these users coming in and correcting the record, the average viewer wouldn't have any idea that this didn't just happen yesterday in Israel. Well, so, I'm, so, I'm so glad that they banned Donald Trump from Twitter because he was the real source of misinformation on Twitter, right? That was that was. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they got not, rid of all not fake troll news accounts, not these no. not these foreign actors who were paying thousands of people to dominate hashtags. It was it was all Donald Trump. He was the he was the biggest source of misinformation. So the author of Hameric sums up says the crisis in Colombia is not just a socioeconomic crisis. It's a crisis of political legitimacy of state institutions in the country. It's an assault on democracy and the rule of law. And this is just like the color revolutions. This is the way that NGOs and foreign actors have been overthrowing governments for the past 20 years. They use a small insignificant event. It can be a police officer slapping a woman in the face. It can be a person who was on the ground who had a fentanyl overdose laying on the ground, saying, I can't breathe, with the police officer just holding him down, waiting for an ambulance to come who dies of his fentanyl overdose. It can be anything insignificant. And because NGOs have a vested ideological interest in creating change that they believe is positive change, they will use that instance to create that change. And they don't care about the human collateral. And it's the same way with bad actors like Venezuela. Venezuela, obviously, according to that tweet, they want to expand their borders and create a greater Venezuela, and they don't care about the human collateral that it would take to, to achieve that end. With the instance of Black Lives Matter, as we're going to talk about in our main topic, they have certain ideological goals that they want to reach, and they don't care about the human collateral. Now, I don't know what got these Korean K-pop fans to flood the Twitter hashtags, I don't know if they're paid. I don't know if what exactly organized them. My guess is somewhere behind the scenes there were activists who were organizing through NGOs to get these activists to organize their – coordinate in order to take over these hashtags. But whatever it was, it's probably the same exact situation with these 7,000 trolls who are taking over the hashtags regarding Colombia. 
But this is the thing. The Arab Spring, if anything, it should have been a wake-up call to people who believe in orderly, stable societies that social media can be deadly. Social media can not only be deadly to human beings, but they can be deadly to cultures. Entire cultures and ways of life have been overthrown because of social media. And you can use social media to further the cause of stability and order and tradition, or you can sit back and think social media is just something for teenagers to post on and, and play around goof off in. But at the end of the day, if you take the latter stance, you're going to end up losing your country and your culture because social media is responsible for literally hundreds of thousands of deaths over the past since it came into existence through all these revolutions, all the social unrest. But beyond that, beyond the human collateral, there's also the cultural collateral. It's democratic norm. Democratic norms are part of our culture. If you have a country and a society that can be overthrown through social media, you don't have a democracy. The people don't have any say because what's the at that point, what is the point in voting? And this is something we talked about in episode 17, how in that school in New York where that leftist, that boomer progressive was teaching, he talked about how the students were interested in – they believed in participating in democracy. Their understanding of democracy was demonstrating. It wasn't voting. And this is where the world is headed. If conservatives, not just in America, but in other countries, don't wake up and pay attention, not just conservatives, classical liberals, if you believe in the liberal tradition of having a government that is representative of the, of the people, of having a government that is elected by the people and adhering to a, consti a written constitution, if you believe in that, then you have to understand that social media is going to completely destroy that within the next couple of decades. Because as it stands now, these younger generations, they're looking at what's happened. They're saying, well, why would I vote? Because you got these chumps that go out and vote for somebody. That person gets elected. And in 28 to 48 hours, we can get that person out of office by just shutting everything down. All you got to do is just block the streets. You block all the all the avenues of communication. You block all the you take over the avenues of communication, like Twitter. You block the uh, the railroads, the roads that stop food and medical supplies from getting to vulnerable populations. And eventually, the government, because it doesn't want its constituents to starve to death, will give in and say, "Okay, what do you want?" These people that are in the streets that are rioting, that are tearing stuff up, that are burning stuff down. They haven't issued a slate of demands yet. They haven't told the government what exactly they want. In fact, the government, the um, one of the mayors of one of the towns that's been affected, uh, basically like their version of Kenosha, he tried to meet with some of the youth leaders who are leading these riots. And right before they met, some people showed up in hoods and showed the youth, these so-called youth leaders, video footage of police allegedly tearing up their roadblocks that wasn't even again this wasn't even in colombia this is from a different protest this could have been in ecuador but they showed them video of the police violently tearing up their illegal roadblocks and this so enraged these youth leaders that they decided to call off the negotiations and just go back to rioting so there are very there's very clearly some vested interests in seeing the violence continue until it gets to a point to where the government is literally prostrate, begging them, basically asking them, what do you want? We'll give you anything. You want the government? We'll give you the government. Just please stop killing people. Please stop burning stuff down. Please stop destroying our country. We'll so give you anything. And you got to understand, it's not just the Maduro people. When people think of the Maduro regime, they think, OK, it's just a government. But it's not just a government. It's an ideology. Hugo Chavez won his, one election in Venezuela by railing against colonialism. He's an anti-colonialist. The anti-colonialist ideology has infected uh, America. It's infected the really the entire West 
to the point that a lot of anti-colonials look at Maduro as some sort of hero. They look at Hugo Chavez as some sort of hero. Chavez was a huge cult of personality. I remember this much that, you know, he very much was to Venezuela what Fidel Castro was to Cuba. And Maduro, who came along, of course, and took power after Chavez died, he very much wants to at least match, if not surpass, his idol Chavez. Correct. So it's uh, Venezuela seems to be part of it, but, you know, it doesn't even have to be the Venezuelan government. There's enough support for this kind of leftist anarcho anarcho communism around the world to where you've got enough people who could fund troll farms. What is the answer to this to governments around the world for governments like Colombia? My argument and the argument that we've made repeatedly on the right take is when you're faced with a situation like this, classical liberalism will not work because you can't debate with somebody who just wants to burn everything down. You can't, how do you argue with fire? You can't argue with fire. You have to put, you have to take out the people who are causing the fire. So, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, democracy in this situation doesn't work. The only solution is authoritarianism. If you can either resort uh, resort to authoritarianism or you can continue to cling to your democratic values and have that democracy completely burned to the ground by nefarious international interests who don't believe in Western civilization and are ardently anti-colonial. Wow, I had no idea that the new season of Narcos was so lit. <laughs> I definitely, I, I liked, I thought the show was good before when it was about Pablo Escobar, but no, this is definitely better than the series about Mexico. You know, it's, it's clear that Colombia is vastly more interesting. And like you said, this is very directly connected to what's been going on here in America over the course of the last couple of years, or certainly the last year when Black Lives Matter really blew out of control. And just as there's this kind of cross affiliation between both of them, even without Venezuelan or Colombian or whatever interlopers, you know, sneaking their way into the protests here in America, the riots here in America are still causing more damage than ever before. Even if it's not nearly as much physical damage, they are still, they, they have the levers of power now that they've so desperately wanted. And we are seeing this, perhaps no greater example of this than what is happening to our great military. The Department of Defense under Joe Biden and under... Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is, uh, again, need to remind you guys, is a former Raytheon board member. So this guy is classic military industrial complex. He's itching for another war. He's also clearly a far left ideologue who buys into that critical race theory nonsense and is eager to be pushing that on every branch of our military, from the Army to the Navy to the Marines and even to the newest one, which was created by President Trump, the Space Force. So, Jacob, what happened to the Space Force uh, in critical race theory news recently? A commander of the U.S. Space Force unit at Buckley Air Force Base in Aurora, Colorado, has been fired for simply writing a book saying that Marxism is infiltrating the military. Now, understand that military personnel are supposed to be completely apolitical. So... For him to say that Marxism is infiltrating the U.S. military and he does tie Marxism in with the Democratic Party in his book, which is called Irresistible Revolution, Marxism's Goal of Conquest and the Unmaking of the American Military. You know, when you're faced with a situation where, which we're going to get into here as we actually, we're going to analyze this book because I did manage to secure a copy of the book before it was completely sold out on Amazon. But in the United States, we do respect civil disobedience. We, we do have a history of civil disobedience. If you're faced with a situation where you can either continue to support an injustice and just keep your mouth shut, or you can break the law and say something about that injustice and speak up and peacefully protest against it, even if it means you're going to get arrested or if you're going to get fired, America generally support 
civil disobedience. So while I definitely don't think that he should have been removed from his position because of what we're going to discuss, I do respect the fact that he was more than willing to risk that in order to be a whistleblower about what's happening in the U.S. military. So during an interview on the conservative podcast Information Operation, Loheimer said that cultural Marxism and leftist ideology have permeated the Department of Defense. Loheimer also discussed critical race theory. He said the diversity, inclusion, and equity industry and the trainings we are receiving in the military is rooted in critical race theory, which is rooted in Marxism. According to Military.com, officials initiated an investigation on whether his comments constituted prohibited partisan political activity. And Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting, Space Operations Command Commander, relieved... Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Loheimer of command of the 11th Space Warning Squadron at Buckley Air Force Base in Colorado on May 14th due to a, quote, loss of trust and confidence in his ability to lead. Of course, according to the Department of Defense, the decision was based on public comments made by Lieutenant Colonel Loheimer in a recent podcast. Lieutenant General Whiting has initiated a command-directed investigation on whether these comments constitute prohibited partisan activity. Okay, so let's dive into Irresistible Revolution. And by the way, I recommend that everyone go online and purchase this book if you can find it. It's no longer available on Amazon. The, uh, once the news broke that Lieutenant Colonel Loheimer had been relieved of his duties, this shot up to number one on Amazon and very quickly uh, sold out completely. So I was very fortunate to be able to actually acquire a copy before they completely sold out. To be honest, I'm impressed that it even got to number one on Amazon in the first yeah, place. Yeah, it didn't completely cut it. So Loheimer opens up talking about the greatness of the American ideal, talks about American history, American's founding philosophy, and then he dives into Marxism, talks about, gives a brief history of Marxism, talks about Marxism's goal of conquest, and he talks about Marx, the many offshoots of Marxism, because one of the phenomena of the 20th century was the delegitimization of Marxism, even among the political left. Now, Marxists didn't go anywhere. They continued to hold on to their beliefs that we could create a utopian society, that we could have a leveling effect on society. And many of them basically took the principles of Marxism and they just diffused those principles into subsequent ideologies. And this is one thing Loheimer points out. He argues, he points out the different, some of those different ideologies, including critical race theory, that came off of Marxism. And he ends the book with a warning of what, of what is going to happen in this country if Americans don't wake up and actually do something to put a stop to this. Loheimer writes, quote, Today's military professional shoulders a difficult burden in a world in which postmodernist, politically correct neo-Marxist activists have politicized every aspect of human existence. The young military professional is reminded still that he or she must remain apolitical. What this amounts to in practice strips these men, women, and men and women of their rights to share their views or beliefs openly on just about any subject. Unless, of course, they too share what has become the progressive leftist paradigm. So, again, you know, the military obviously is supposed to be apolitical. You don't want to hear, I don't want to hear a soldier's politics unless I know him personally and it's, you know, outside of his military duties. And I don't think any American does. The, the American military is supposed to serve all of the people. And in fact, well, Eric, you remember we had a, um, this is at a, at a gathering about a month ago, we met a Marine and he was talking about how the military is instructed that they are supposed to remain neutral even if a civilian is cussing out the military in front of them. They can just be completely bad-mouthing the military. They can be bad-mouthing their branch, and they're not supposed to say anything. They're supposed to just stand there and take it. And the reason being, they are fighting for that civilian's right to say that. Free speech is a, is a bedrock of the American culture and the American existence, the American life that these personnel are supposed to be defending. So even if you're bashing their unit, 
they're not you're a civilian they're not supposed to say anything exactly this is the eternal conundrum of you know the military fights for your right to burn the american flag as it were you know which uh, obviously has that's a whole other debate we could have about whether or not you know that kind of anti-patriotic speech should be outlawed and punished by you know the government or not but that's yeah it, it can it certainly sounds like it could present several frustrating situations for service members who know that what they're hearing is wrong but as long as they are in uniform they can't say anything about it Right, because they're not supposed to be political, but when you're faced with something like this, if your very existence and your very – your identity, your existence, and your country are under attack, when you're not allowed to defend or even criticize the criticism of your existence, your identity, and your country for fear of it being considered political, you've kind of reached a point to where what is the difference between us and China? And this is a point that Loheimer points out. He says, during my junior year, I was selected to travel to China as part of a small U.S. delegation of cadets. Over spring break, we traveled to the People's Liberation Army Air Force, or PLAF, Academy in Changchun, China, north of uh, North Korea. I remember these two cadets with whom I stayed, underclassmen, though I do not remember what year they were. What I remember most, however, was the brief conversation I had with these two in the private confines of their own room before it was time for bed. Even though before our visit, our small U.S. delegation had been warned which things we were not allowed to talk about, we college students had enough curiosity toward one another that these social guidelines seemed fungible. Eventually, beliefs were discussed, albeit briefly. What are your beliefs, I asked. I assumed I would learn that they were Buddhist or Taoist. We believe in Marxism, came the reply. Do your parents believe in Marxism, I asked. At this, they seemed hesitant to answer. Looking back now, I cannot help but wonder if, I, if we were all being recorded. No, my parents are Buddhist, one of them answered. Okay, so if you compare his conversation with these these Marxists in the Chinese Communist, these so-called Marxists in the Chinese Communist military, to the current situation in America, think about how it's not really that different. He's asking them, "What do you believe?" Well, we believe in Marxism. In the American military, just substitute diversity for Marxism, and you have the same situation. He goes on. Russian mathematician and anti-Soviet dissident Igor Shev. Farovich explained that the Soviet communist regime was always rewriting history so as to belittle the people's national identity, sound familiar, and destroy the national culture. In his essay, Separation or Reconciliation, the Nationalities Question in the USSR, Shafarovich writes of the Soviet's methods, quote, historical relics are destroyed instead of preserved. Yes, it's happening here as well. Ancient cities and streets are given new names, happening in the U.S. as well. It seemed to him and other Russians as if every action taken by the state was meant to stamp out any manifestation of Russian national consciousness. At the Virginia Military Institute, Stonewall Jackson was one of the biggest heroes of that institute. They recently changed uh, – they have they, – every year as a tradition, they have a parade in Lexington where they celebrate uh, VMI students who fought off Union invaders. Well, they recently changed that parade to celebrate all of the VMI cadets who have died in battle, not just the Confederate ones, but they went a step further. Not only are they removing Stonewall Jackson's statue from VMI, but they're also reattributing his quotes to people who didn't say him. Let me reiterate that. Stonewall Jackson's quotes are emblazoned, I've never been, I guess, in stone at the Virginia Military Institute. They're leaving the quotes, they're just taking off the name Stonewall Jackson and they're putting in somebody else's name from the 19th century now, using Stonewall Jackson's words. Now that is revisionist history if ever I've heard of it. That is the same exact thing that the Soviets did, the same exact same the same exact thing that the Chinese communists did. 
and for the sake of what? For for you know social justice, for being politically correct, to wipe out the legacy, the name of a guy, a, a military genius. It needs to be acknowledged. Stonewall Jackson is a military genius whose tactics are still studied to this day. You can talk about the Confederacy and the Civil War all you want, but at the end of the day, to treat this guy like some kind of villain who needs to be scrubbed from memory, Hitler is more memorialized at this point than Confederates are. Like, they're, they're, they do more to remind us about Hitler and the things Hitler said than about the Confederates. Yeah, because I mean, they, this is just like the Russians. Every it's like the it's like Shevardovich said. Um, he said historical relics are destroyed instead of preserved. Ancient cities and streets are given new names, and the Russians, uh, which now the Americans are doing the same thing, uh, had to stamp out any manifestation of Russian national consciousness, which is what they've been doing since the um, Daniel Roof incident in South Carolina in 2015. Dylan Roof. They have been. Uh, um, yeah, Dylan Roof. Uh, they've been completely stamping out any manifestation of Southern cultural consciousness. All Confederate statues got to go. All names named after the Confederacy. Confederate flags. Yeah, Confederate banned the Confederate flag in New York. This a judge uh, told so there was a dispute between a white woman who had a mixed child, and she just moved to a new house, and there was a custody battle between her and the father. Well, the house she moved to had a had a rock. This is in upstate New York. It had a rock with the Confederate flag painted on it. Oh, I heard about this. She story. didn't paint the Confederate flag. She just moved into a new house. The judge told her that we're gonna have to take that into consideration if we're gonna whenever we're thinking about who should have custody of the child, because you need to take into consideration whether or not that child uh, is gonna be raised with um with consciousness of being black in America. So the the judges are literally you know basing their decisions on custody battles over whether or not parents are going to raise their children, pretty much in the in the doctrines of critical race theory. I just can't even that is that's that's a whole new level of evil right there when the government decides they know what's better for the children than their own parents do, and even the way the judge puts it, you could also almost argue that judge sound racist in the sense that are they essentially arguing it's bad for the kid to grow up thinking they're black? I guess is that a is well? That yes, because the judges want the the mother to teach the child that it is bad to grow up black. That is that is part and parcel of the ideology. That if you're a white mother and you're raising a mixed child, you need to make sure that you indoctrinate that child to know that it's bad to grow up black in America. So Nicole Hannah Jones, she was the one who spearheaded the project, at the New York Times. This was a this was a part of us like a hundred and three page magazine article in 2019. That came out and essentially for uh, most people know what it is now, but just for those that don't, it's the 1619 Project argues that America's founding was actually in 1619 instead of 1776 when the very first African slaves were brought to the United States. And that was really that that began basically the the the, the Holocaust for black people in America. So this project, it argues that every single it, it interprets every single facet of American society through the lens of race. Every single uh, – in, in fact, it argues that the revolution, the American Revolution, was fought to preserve slavery. Every single aspect, uh, for starting from 1619, working to the present, is interpreted through the lens of black oppression. So, Sources? So, historical facts? What's that? Right, exactly. Well, you don't need historical facts when you're trying to spearhead a revolution. The 1619 Project wanted to make sure that they left no stone unturned. That every aspect of American history, even up to the present, was condemned because the mentality beforehand was things got better in the 60s. So American history before 1965 would be condemned. But after 1965, things got progressively better. Well, the 1619 Project completely overturns that notion. It's the, it's the idea that 
things have not gotten much better, that we're still living in a white supremacist country, that you can't look at it. Basically what it does is it completely overturns the apple cart and makes sure that white liberals have no corner in which to hide. They make it so that no white liberal can feel any pride in his country after reading the 1619 Project. In 2020, Hannah Jones worked with the Times to distribute copies of the 1619 Project to educators and activists around the country to help them develop a deeper understanding of systemic racism. A 1619 Project booklet has since been has um, has since seen broad distribution in connection with the efforts of the Black Lives Matter at school group. The booklet, as it's known, is a publication of the Zen Education Project, named for the late Howard Zinn, a radical Marxist historian. The Zen Education Project has been active in offering to distribute and teach the 1619 Project material to educators across the country. Not coincidentally, Zen's own narrative of American history first published in the 80s, A People's History of the United States, the work for which he is best known, shares the same critical and cynical character as the 2019 Times Project. In Zen's work, he goes as far as to admit that his hope is that there will be a people's revolution in the United States. Years earlier, in a letter to the editor of Notre Dame's Observer, that a younger Hannah Jones would never have anticipated would be par um, paraded for the world to see, she wrote that, the, that, quote, the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. Whites have always been an unjust, jealous, unmerciful, avaricious, and bloodthirsty set of beings. This is what the author of the 1619 Project wrote. I just, I mean, and again, this, it needs to be said, if you said that about any other race, I, I'm pretty sure some guy in the 1930s with a bad mustache said the same thing about Jews. Uh, well, exactly. And uh, this is what uh, this is what Loheimer is going to conclude at the end of his of his book, that this is actually all of this is paving the way for genocide. And I actually had a Twitter exchange back when I had a Twitter account with an FIU um, professor. She was uh, she was a visiting professor at FIU. I don't recall her name, but I will definitely will definitely put her name and cop in photos of the screenshots of the exchange in the description. But I remember this particular professor, we were having this exchange. This was during the Black Lives Matter protest. And I pointed out that that professors at universities believe that white people are essentially subhumans, that they are the worst race that has ever existed in the world. And she said, yeah, you can't argue with that. It's a fact. White people are the worst human beings in world history. And she herself is white. So this is not this is not an uncommon concept to encounter at a university. This is just kind of common knowledge that white people are the most uh, are the most evil race that ever existed in human history. The first step is to dehumanize them and make them seem terrible to other people so you feel no sympathy for them. You know, if like, you know, if a white guy gets beaten to death by a, a mob of black people in the middle of the street, nobody cares. Correct. And uh, can you think of a world leader in history that no one has any sympathy for? Uh, I, I think of I can think of one. I think of one. He had a very bad mustache. Yes, and so Hannah Jones <laughs> continued in the same exact letter that she wrote to Notre Dame's Observer. She said that Christopher Columbus is no different than Hitler. She insisted that white European descendants of America's settlers continue to be quote bloodsuckers in our communities. Wait, so we're vampires? We're now? vampires. Yes, I didn't get I didn't get the memo. Exactly. When, why can't I transform into a bat? We're sucking the blood out of black people in black communities, apparently. Loheimer writes, the 1619 mythology created by this angry writer is now being packaged up and used in public schools and university classrooms across America. So far, 4,500 of them at the time of this writing, which was several months ago, are serving this up to the rising generations as the rising generation's first introduction to real American history. So 4,500 institutions, we're talking about, let's say, if each institution has 1,000 students that will go through its school doors, we're talking about 
four point does this uh, to correct me wrong uh, correct me if I'm wrong about math but I believe that is 450,000 young Americans who are going to learn this stuff sounds about right no 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 I'm wrong that's 4.5 million young oh, Americans even worse. that are going to oh, learn right. this stuff that are now and this is this isn't the, what they're going to do, this is what they're currently doing in 4,500 school uh, districts. And, of course, that number, I'm sure, has risen since publication. He writes, its effect upon Americans will be the same as that inflicted upon Russians under communist rule. So he quotes the, the, the Russian dissident, quote, generations of Russians were brought up on such a horrendous version of Russian history that all they want to do is try and forget that they ever had a past at all. Which is what we're seeing in America. You've got generations, of, really two generations of Americans now, because this stuff didn't start with Hannah Nicole Jones. This stuff didn't start with the 2019 Project. I remember when I was in college, all of the professors were leftists. All of the professors were very, were just completely overcome with white guilt. This has been going on for decades, and conservatives didn't say a damn thing about it. Nope. They didn't care. You they were too busy fighting in Vietnam. But right, they were too busy continuing to fight in Vietnam and continuing to fight the Cold War even after the Cold War was over with. All right, so he writes that beyond among the reasons that he took an interest in the 1619 project is that it had already been shaping, reshaping the American military culture with complete disastrous effects. So think about it. He says, ask yourself these questions. Do you like the idea of your country's uniformed service members believing the narrative of American history that communist, Cuba-loving, white-hating Hannah Jones, Marxist Black Lives Matter at school, and the Marxist Zen Education Project prescribe? Is their vision of American history true? Does it appear to you that there is an agenda at play? Does this ideology unify the country? Is it intended to unify the country? He writes, if you are a service member, have you seen these trainings improve your unit's cohesiveness? Has it made groups of people increasingly suspicious of one another based on their racial identities? Because think about it. It's one thing if you're introducing this to children in school. It's another thing entirely if you're introducing this to 18-year-old cadets, many of whom simply went into the military because they love their country and wanted to and serve they their want country. to serve it, right. It's arguably the last like truly center-right institution in the United States, and that's already changing very quickly. Correct, but the thing about these, about these cadets is many of them aren't ideological. They don't really have a set ideology. They love their country. That's and that's a, that's a problem. If you can strip them of that love of country, remember, they don't really have much of an ideology. That's dangerous. Because now you have the armed forces, the trained armed forces, who now are ideologically driven. And they and they hate America. You have people who are trained to hate America, ostensibly fighting to protect America. Or rather, they're in charge of our national security and our defense. And if one political party adopts the ideology that they've been trained, if the other political party attacks that ideology, it's no longer partisan activity to attack the party that's attacking that ideology because it's, now – It's defending national security. Exactly. It's a, the, that party, that entire political party has become a national security threat. Loharmer writes, I was surprised by what I encountered last year after taking command of an operational squadron in the Space Force. During my first month in command, military professionals across the base, predominantly Air Force and Space Force personnel, were asked by base leadership to watch two videos in preparation for a virtual wingman day during which trained facilitators would mediate discussions on race and inclusion. This, of course, came in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. In the first video, the base was asked to watch portrays American history as fraught with racism from 1619 till the present. 400 years of white supremacy is how the film's director described it. The film teaches that the U.S. Constitution codified a racist social order intended to allow whites to remain in power and subjugate and oppress blacks, and that we as a nation have never escaped from that foundation of racism. Further, that upon ratification of the Constitution, 
White supremacy was now the official policy of the United States of America. At one point, reference is made to former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and it is asserted in the film that because the mentality of white supremacy has become ingrained in our nation's psyche, he and other whites like him do not want blacks to get too far. The idea is that the racism of these white people is true whether they recognize it or not. They simply cannot help it. The second video portrays Republican politicians as racist, claiming, for example, that George Bush won the election by causing Americans to fear black people, and also showing clips of Donald Trump before the 2016 election that cast him in a negative light, insinuating that he has fueled race, uh, systemic racism in America. Later in the video, President Trump, who, keep in mind, was president and commander-in-chief chief, both at the time the video was created as well as when it was distributed to the base, is cast in a terrible light and out of context, directly implying that he enjoys oppressing blacks and keeping minorities in inferior status. This is a video that they're showing on, a, on a, an Air Force base to active duty military personnel about their commander-in-chief while he is commander-in-chief. Lohammer opens up his chapter three with a quote from Sun Tzu. He wrote, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every single battle. And this is why this stuff is happening. This is why you have a situation where Conservatives elect a conservative president, it, but it doesn't matter. Nothing changes. The, pre, the conservative gets into office, and while he's president, while he's the commander-in-chief, at a military base, they're showing a video that attacks him as being a racist, that attacks the country as being a racist, that, that attacks the Constitution that these service members swore, swore an oath to defend. So how do you get here? How does this happen? Well, like Sun Tzu said, if you know yourself but not the enemy for every victory gained – you will also suffer a defeat. Many conservatives don't know the enemy. They think they know the enemy. They think the enemy is socialism. They think the enemy is unions. I remember whenever I got hired at a think tank in D.C., the, the big thing that they focused on was unions, as if unions are the biggest threat to American civilization. That's all they – just union corruption, how the unions are, are just so terrible. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. And this is why conservatives are losing every single battle. Conservatives have reached to the point where they don't even believe – they don't even know what conservatism is anymore. It's still very much wedded to the Cold War lens of a world in which the top two world powers were a capitalist and a communist nation. And they were both nuclear and the threat of mutually assured destruction hung over our heads for half a century. They still haven't figured out how to move on from that. It's like Plato's The Cave, you know, the allegory of the cave when people are shown the chance – to leave what they thought was real. And yeah, it's earth shattering when you realize, oh, what I thought I knew all this time was really just a lie. And the world outside this cave is the real deal. It's terrifying to a lot of those people, but they refuse to listen. They refuse to adapt. They refuse to move on. And at this point, that's on them. Trump could do whatever he could. He's just one man at the end of the day. They refuse to listen. And that's why they still talk about unions as, as if unions are bad, which they can be. Teachers unions are a cancer on this country. We should destroy them at any, any means possible. But unions for truckers or blue collar workers, those are fine. I understand why you know, th those, a lot of those people turned around and voted for Trump, even though they're union members. One of the ways in which Black Lives Matter has completely taken over the culture is the way that Americans are treated who happen to be a part of the class that's considered the oppressor. So people who happen to be white. 
the diversity trainings, the equity trainings that they're forcing people in the corporate world to go through, they're forcing military service members to go through, it's very reminiscent of a defeated foe. So you capture – if you conquer a country and you want to reeducate the country so future generations in that country don't try to resist your occupation, you would put their children through the same thing that American white children are being put through today. Well, pretty much all American children are being put through today, but especially white people who happen to be adults because the mentality is if we can educate kids in critical race theory when they're young, they will grow up to be anti-racist. Adults, you can't put them back through the education system, but you can force them to sit through what are essentially what are for pretty much communist style torture sessions, like psychological torture sessions. And here's here's a good point that Loheimer makes. He said on November thirteenth, nineteen fifty six, three years after the Korean War ended, a report was presented at a combined meeting of the section on neurology and psychiatry at the New York Academy of Medicine as part of a panel discussion on communist methods of interrogation and indoctrination. The report focuses primarily on Chinese communist efforts to extort false confessions from American prisoners, something half of American POWs experienced while in captivity. So rather than inflict physical violence, as the prisoners perhaps feared most, the communist captors would seek to manipulate the beliefs, statements, and, conduct and conduct of prisoners by establishing controlled environments and through the extortion of false confessions. So why would you, con uh, why would you coerce false confessions? Because at least for some prisoners, the repetition of false confessions of guilt over time convinced them they were actually guilty. Acquiescence to the idea of one's own actual guilt in turn bred self-loathing, self-resentment, generated an internal struggle that was more successful than even the exogenously imposed torment of a captor. In the end, it was psychologically crippling, turning the captive into a compliant pawn. So this is, this is what we see with corporate America, with these equity sessions. You see white people in these sessions being forced to verbally admit that they are racist. This is this is what they do. They put them they put them in the, in a room and they sit around they talk about race and then I'll separate the white people and they want to make sure that the white people verbally admit I am a racist. They want to they want the, they want to get them to admit their guilt because they're white. This is exactly what the Chinese did when they captured American POWs in Korea. So, hey, good thing we're not speaking Chinese, right? In weighing a pile we, might of well, we might as well be at this yeah, point. Yeah, we might as well be at this point. In weighing a pile of testimony and evidence, American scientists and psychologists came to believe that the communist captors were mostly interested in forced confessions as a type of teaching procedure. This is something I noticed actually years ago. Uh, remember whenever uh, school prayer was such a huge issue, like back in the 2000s, it was kind of in the in – the, where freedom from religion was waging all their lawsuits against schools. I remember there was this one southern town. That had been forced to stop having prayer at school basketball games. And the way the journalists covered it, they taught it as a teaching session. They, they presented it as this is a teachable moment for these backward Southern Christians. Because by having prayer taken out of their schools, we can educate them that this isn't inclusive. So this is a teaching moment. And this is what the communists, this is straight out of Mao's playbook. This was a teaching moment for these POWs. So they were teaching or training, as noted above, American POWs to be compliant, to build a habit of confessor behavior, and for apparently no other reason than for the sake of compliance itself. Scientists further found that the methods used by the Chinese communists were not uniquely their own, but had been used for decades wherever communist regimes had been established. The now, here's, here's, here, this is interesting. The Geneva Conventions of August 1949, which among other things established the standards of international law for the humanitarian treatment of combatants during war, 
expressly prohibit any form of coercion used to secure from POWs information of any kind, whatever. The language in Part 3, Section 1, Article 17 goes so far as to say that POWs who refuse to answer the questions put to them by their captors may not be threatened, insulted, or exposed to any unpleasant or disadvantageous treatment of any kind. Did you catch that? What we're doing to our own citizens is worse than what the, is, is exactly what the Geneva Conventions for a prohibit to prisoners of war. We are treating our own civilian American citizens worse than what prisoners of war are supposed to be treated according to the Geneva Convention. Loheimer asked, why is it that there is an entire industry in the United States that is paid to employ these same coercive and manipulative tactics against the American people? Why are taxpayers funding this industry so that federal employees, men and women in uniform even, can be incessantly exposed to threats, insults, and unpleasant and disadvantageous treatment if they refuse to acknowledge and confess their guilt, their privilege? I am talking about the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry. The industry appears to be seeking to actively shape compliance of our men and women in uniform, ensuring patterns of confessor behavior are established for our young military service members. Why do we allow this? Why doesn't somebody, anybody, in the senior leadership circles of our military stand up against it? Perhaps they have tried but have been unsuccessful. Perhaps they are unaware or naive. I would argue that most Americans are naive. I mean, look, the Republicans have been talking about critical race theory for months now. We have states in this country with Republican supermajorities that still have not passed anything related to critical race theory. There have been bills that have died in Republican legislatures that are dominated by conservatives. Why is that? Well, the main reason is because the average American doesn't know what critical race theory is. They don't know what Marxism is. They don't know what postmodernism is. They don't know what any of this stuff is. And this is by design. It's designed to keep people confused. So they it's it's designed to deliberately be ambiguous and not easily explained. So it's not, it's much harder for the, its opponents to attack. Exactly. Loheimer writes, learning the basic concepts of Marxist ideology helps one understand the what behind the current identity-based group struggles appearing in the United States. It is also to get us to look at the underlying ideological foundation for alternative narratives about American history, such as those reframings of American history undertaken by the likes of Howard Zinn and Nicole Hannah-Jones. So let's briefly consider the following. There were two authors who wrote a book called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity. Their names were Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Pluckrose and Lindsay describe how the kind of authoritarian changes rapidly occurring in our institutions at once become difficult to understand because they, quote, stem from a very peculiar view of the world, one that even speaks its own language in a way. And I referenced this in a previous episode about when Rush Limbaugh interviewed Charlemagne the God. How Charlemagne the God was going on about systemic racism and Rush Limbaugh moved on because he didn't know what he was talking about. And then the very next day, Rush's fill-in said, explained that Rush got completely hammered in that interview because he wasn't speaking the same language as Charlemagne the God and his team. They were speaking – both speaking English, but they couldn't understand each other. And Rush Limbaugh particularly couldn't understand what the hell they were talking about because they were using English words in a way that the average person can't understand if they haven't been versed in this, uh, this neo-Marxism. Descri describing the so postmodernist social justice act, and this is what these authors say. They say within the English-speaking world, they speak English, but they use everyday words differently from the rest of us. When they speak of racism, for example, they're not referring to prejudice on the grounds of race, but rather to, as they define it, a racialized system that permeates all interactions in society, yet in lar is largely invisible except to those who experience it or, ha or who have been trained in the proper critical methods that train them to see it. These are the people sometimes referred to as being woke. This very precise technical usage of the word inevitably bewilders people, and in their confusion, they may go along with things they wouldn't if they had a common frame of reference 
to help them understand what is actually meant by the word. I remember I I uh, tuned into a sermon from a pastor in Tennessee that I whenever I was real little he was friends with my parents because I hadn't heard from him from years I thought yeah you know you know what I'm not going to church this Sunday so I'll just tune in this was back in January this is right after the riots I mean not not the riots but this this was back in January this was right after the storming of the Capitol and I remember he was he was talking about you know he said you know people talk about the Great Replacement I don't know what that means. So people talk about woke. I don't know what that means. And he was and basically the point he was trying to make was that uh, people are getting too caught up in worldly affairs and they're not, they're not focused on Christianity. But I was thinking to myself, no, wait a minute. If this was, I remember, I remember this guy 15, 20 years ago, he was very involved in the news. He was very involved. He and his church and other Christian uh, Protestant pastors, they were, they made sure they kept their, their church members, uh, you know, informed of what was going on in the world. So they would know they would know what was going on so they could basically balance it off of a Christian framework. But now we've reached the point to where Christian pastors are saying, I don't know what any of this stuff means. So I'm just going to throw up my hands and say, oh, well, I'm just going to live my life and not worry about what any of it means. Well, maybe you'll pay attention when they start busting down the front door of your church and arresting all your church members and hauling them off to prison. Uh, you know, is that what it's going to take to get conservatives to actually pull their heads out of the clouds and pay attention to this stuff? That's already being done in Canada. So, I mean, you know, I, I guess we're not that far off. If that's what it takes to get people to pay attention. But Loheimer continues, the philosophy of postmodernism was developed by a French theorists who revolutionized social philosophy by launching an assault on reason. So he talks about Jacques Derrida. I won't go into the founder of deconstructionism in France. They basically took Marxism and created postmodernism out of it, just basically to sum it up. Um, this is um, we're not going to go too deeply into this. But he talks, he talks about how postmodern thought deliberately attacks science and reason in every effort to reshape society. It asserts that individuals possess no independent meaning, that only one's group identity or affiliation gives them meaning. Similar to Marxism, it divides society into the dominant and marginalized identities, asserting that society is itself underpinned by invisible systems of white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, cisnormativity, ableism, and fat phobia. And this is, uh, again, this is something that conservatives laugh at. They're like, I don't know what any of this means. It's like uh, I remember listening to a radio show a week ago. They were talking about a situation where they were creating a special class just for BIPOC by um, – it's like a black indigenous people of color at New York University – and the, because they were arguing that because of racism and sizeism, that BIPOC are discriminated against. And the, the radio host was saying, what does that mean? Uh, sizeism? What does that mean? And his co said, oh, she said, I guess we're not supposed to question it. But this is the problem. Conservatives just look at all this as a joke. They just think this is funny. They either they genuinely don't know what it means, or they know what it means, and they just say, "Oh, that's really stupid that they've created, you know, fat phobia, which obviously means some kind of fear of fat people." Like we know what it means, but we just they just laugh at it. But which the, it's, it's an understandable with, reaction. It's but. the same with sizeism. How do you not know what that means? It's pretty obvious what it means. They were reading it, and but because they find it so ridiculous, they're just like. I don't know. It's just these people are being crazy. And the, and this is what was really infuriating is the, the talk show host, he said, what it is is we're so comfortable in America that people have to find something to complain about. And that's the point at which I just basically want to go up to a glass wall and ram my forehead into it as hard as I possibly can because that is not what's going on right here. People are not buying into critical race theory and all these interse you know, intersectionality, which Loheimer goes into as well. They're not buying into this stuff because they're so comfortable that they have to find something to complain about. These are actual ideologies that prey on people's otherness. So if a person is black, it's very easy for them to get sucked into this because all people have to do is say, 
look at the poverty disparity. Look at the arrest disparity. So you know, this, the reason for this is because America is a historically white supremacist country. It's not that we have it so good, people just looking around for things to complain about. Lohheimer moves on to critical legal theory, which was created in the 70s, and this argues that, um, which was basically came out of neo-Marxism, another version of neo-Marxism that argues that laws are inherently racist because the laws were created by white people, and they were created to perpetuate white supremacy. Now think about how, what, what kind of society that sets up. If you're not white, that tell, if I'm not white, that tells me, okay, I don't have to obey the law because the law was created by white people for white people. Well, this critical legal theory then moves into critical race theory. You basically just, if you just substitute the race for the law, everything becomes racist. Like the salt, the salt shaker, because it's white, it's racist. One of the founders of critical legal theory was Duncan Kennedy. He believed that incessant criticism of racial injustices would fuel the emergence of the very identity groups that Mark, Herbert Marcuse, which, who was one of the, the neo-Marxists who infiltrated American academia, predicted would be the new revolutionary base. Kennedy quotes approvingly his fellow university professor Cornell West to assert the existence of an, quote, inquit, scattered, yet gathering progressive movement that is emerging across the American landscape. This gathering now lacks both the vital moral vocabulary and the focused leadership that can const constitute and sustain it. Note once again, Loheimer writes, the fact that there is a deliberate focus on language, quote, the vital moral vocabulary, because critical theorists and postmodernists know that by manipulating the meaning of words, it is possible to replace old ideas with new ones. The imposition of this sort of confusion of tongues upon society makes radical shifts not only possible, but inevitable, at first gradually, then imperceptibly, then suddenly. Tragically, in both cases, the unraveling traditional social structure is difficult to rescue. Consequently, an increasingly polarized population is rendered mutually incomprehensible. And that's where we are today. That's why Americans can't push back against this. We are being conquered from within, and there's nothing we can do about it because you have Democrats and Republicans that are increasingly polarized and just screaming at one another and yelling at one another. And as he writes, an increasingly polarized population is rendered mutually incomprehensible. To the people who know what critical race theory is and have an agenda to bring it to America, to every aspect of America, the constant bickering between Democrats and Republicans over everything but this is just perfect for them. And again, they use because the language they use, the vital moral vocabulary, confuses people to such a degree to where it's just like the term Black Lives Matter. Nobody's going to oppose Black Lives Matter. I mean, what, you don't think that Black Lives Matter? You know, that that's the argument. So they completely— They're, they're masters at hiding behind seemingly agreeable terms. Like, anti-fascist is another one. It's like, oh, if you're against Antifa, <laughs> then you must be pro-fascist. Yeah, they think they're be... so smart when they come up with these ideas. Exactly. And there's a, actually uh, a CNN host in his show recently, just yesterday. He had on two members of Antifa and defended Antifa. And argue that they're just fighting against fascists. He said, imagine you have a table. Hitler and Mussolini are sitting on one side. And I don't know, some child actor or whatever, some, some kid's character is sitting on the other. Who are you going to side with? And this is the dichotomy. This is what they present. Are you going to stand with Hitler or are you going to stand with Antifa? Pick one. You know, one or the other. Do you want to be with the, like, do you want to be part of the D-Day invasion? Or do you want to be up on top of the hill with the Nazis fighting, shooting at Americans who are trying to overthrow Nazism? That, that's the dichotomy they present. Derek Bell, the widely acknowledged godfather of critical race theory, helps us better understand the role of CRT authors. He says their work, quote, is often disruptive because its commitment to anti-racism goes well beyond civil rights, integration, affirmative action, and other liberal measures. Bell, in his essay titled, Who's Afraid of Critical Race Theory? 
cites theorist and, prof and professor Charles Lawrence and says he speaks for many critical race theory adherents when he disagrees with the notion that laws are or can be written from a neutral perspective. Because the law systematically privileges subjects who are white, CRT calls for a transformative resistance strategy. Critical race theorists make no apology for the truth that CRT is a political weapon to be used to transform American society and culture. In the minds of activists, because of its intended uses, CRT no longer belonged merely within the protected walls of the university where it had been confined for far too long. One of the ways this transformation might be accomplished, as noted earlier, was through the creation of a new vocabulary. In just one such example, critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw came up with the term intersectionality, which enables woke victims to recognize they are oppressed in more ways than just one. By citing association with more than one social group or axis, victims can recognize that there are potentially numerous reasons for their own oppression. As explained by critical race theorist writers Patricia Hill Collins and Surma um, Bilge, with intersectionality, people's lives and the organization of power in a given society are better understood as being shaped not by a single axis of social division, be it race or gender or class, but by many axes that work together to influence each other. The result is that people are trained to look for power imbalances, bigotry and biases that they assume must be present, even unconscious biases, which by definition are unrecognizable to the persons who possess them. Everything is reduced to prejudice. It, uses, it also uses storytelling, often fictionalized and sensationalized stories, in order to portray America as a systemically racist country that seeks to keep down people of color. Its ceaseless assault is not confined merely to American institutions, but is extended to America's founding philosophy, values, and cultural identities. And speaking of the fictionalized and sensationalized stories, think of Nancy Pelosi's, uh, what was it, her grandnephew who wanted to be brown like Antonio? Her grandson. Her grandson. Under the banner of diversity and inclusion training, some leaders unethically used their positions to promote CRT's divisive uh, agenda and anti-American propaganda to the military personnel at their bases, Loheimer writes. As a result, we are seeing increased division and resentment within the ranks. We are seeing good order and discipline undermined. We are eroding the confidence military professionals place in their oath to support and defend the Constitution. Fortunately, every base is different, as is every leader. There is yet hope that once the broader military community becomes aware of what is happening, more courageous and patriotic service members of all ranks across the political spectrum will take a stand against CRT's destructive impulse. It is one of the purposes for which I am writing this book. And this is significant because one of the reasons why critical race theory is basically just you know, transforming American society like a bulldozer is because nobody wants to speak out. Nobody wants to say anything. Nobody wants to be a martyr. That's essentially it. Nobody wants to be a martyr. As early as 2011, during the Obama administration, the Department of Defense began shifting away from principles of non-discrimination and recognition of individual merit. The Pentagon's 2011 Military Leadership Diversity Commission a commission most people in uniform had never even heard of, uh, by the way, largely composed of diversity experts and academics issued a voluminous report that redefined diversity to mean racial and sexual quotas and group rights, not individual rights and not meritocracy. This is according to Elaine Donnelly, president of the Center of Military Readiness. Redefining diversity to mean racial and sexual quotas and group rights is not surprising when experts and academics are given power to determine what matters for America's military. Douglas Murray pointed out that even back in 2006, a survey showed that 18% of academics at U.S. universities self-identified as Marxist. 18%. Nearly a quarter identified as radical. If you took a survey of non-academics, I guarantee you that number would be less than 3% that identify as Marxist. Even today, when Marxism is kind of coming back in vogue, I guarantee you it'd be 3%. 18% back in 2006, that number is probably, uh, probably an entire quarter today. The House version of the pending National Defense Authorization Act for 2021 
would codify this MLDC agenda. Among other things, the legislation, and get this, the legis- this legislation, the current House version, would establish high-level chief diversity officers empowered to approve promotions only for officer candidates who embrace critical race theory indoctrination or fit the desired race, sex, and sexual orientation characteristics. So if you don't believe in critical race theory and you are in the military right now, if this House bill were to get passed, you would never get promoted. That's pretty scary. That only adherence to critical race theory, if this bill were to become law, only adherence to critical race theory would be allowed to be promoted in the military. So it doesn't matter how devoted you are to your country. It doesn't matter how good you are of a soldier. You will never be promoted if you do not bend the knee to critical race theory, just like those communist, those Chinese soldiers that uh, this guy encountered in China would not be allowed to be promoted if they weren't Marxist. I mean, heck, in China, they wouldn't be allowed to join the military if they weren't Marxist. And this is kind of where we're going. Critical race theory is becoming the Marxism of America to the point to where in t- if this continues to go in less than 10 years, you won't be able to join the military if you don't sign a pledge of allegiance to critical race theory, just like you can't join the Chinese military if you're not a Marxist. And this is one of the reasons why conservatives haven't been successful at pushing back against any of this. Conservatives are focused on socialism. Marxism in the Vietnam War was not about socialism. Marxism um, in the Vietnam War was about anti-colonialism, just like all of these struggles that the Soviet Union funded that we fought against were about anti-colonialism. And this is where – and Loheimer, this is the point that Loheimer makes throughout the entire book. This is what he points out is that this demonization of people, that the language that's used to talk about people, especially after the January 6th uh, invasion of the Capitol, is the same language that is used to dehumanize people in order to prepare to lay the groundwork for genocide. Imagine a military – that is completely controlled by people who believe in critical race theory. Every general, every colonel, every lieutenant colonel, all the way down to the privates, they're all completely indoctrinated in critical race theory. They all believe all white people are inherently racist, and they believe that anyone who opposes critical race theory and opposes their vision of equity should be killed. Imagine what kind of uh, kind of society, or if not killed, at least put in prison. Imagine the society that that would create in the United States. Well, get this. this is, there's one particular lieutenant colonel that Loheimer uh, points out, he doesn't give his name. He says there's one particular active duty lieutenant colonel who basically just went off on his on social media after the George Floyd riots. On his Facebook account, he said, when you look like me, asking me to leave my personal life at the door adds insult to, in- to an injury that began when my first ancestors set foot on these lands over 400 years ago. We can't leave ourselves at the door, so buckle up. And he goes on, he's continuing to just rant politically. This is an active duty lieutenant colonel in our military, and he faced no discipline over over his partisan activity. Now, keep in mind, Loheimer gets replaced because he wrote this book. This lieutenant colonel, he's the same rank as Loheimer. He doesn't face any disciplinary action. He's allowed to rant. And in fact, active duty service members, as Loheimer points out, like his post. They share his post. They comment favorably on his post. So this particular lieutenant colonel is both black and gay. And he reminds his readers that his own oppression, which according to him is the immediate result of his identities, give him the right to critique elites despite his obligations as an active duty service member. Commenting on the BLM and Antifa violence in the summer of 2020, he explained, quote, if you're wondering when these protests end and what better looks like, you need to understand the problem and act. America has a race problem. It is systemic. So where does it all end? When we burn the system to the ground and we can, all of us. In one post, he accuses the military of having a racially and sexually biased promotion system, which 
apparently didn't hurt him. Another service member activist, also a black officer, posted this after Republican politician Herman Cain died. Quote, F him, he died cooning. In the last of his posts, he delivers a dire warning to both his fellow service member as well as to the American people whose personal political views differ from his own. He says, quote, you can run, but you can't hide. And this, I hope this is the moral of the story to conservatives, that you can continue to run, but you're not going to hide from this. And this is what we, in the 60s, we faced the same exact kind of radicalism in America. We had the students for a democratic society. We had the weather underground. We had actual communists who were rooting for the Viet Cong to defeat the U.S. military. And we had race riots in America's cities. But the thing that was different back then from now is middle class people. They just packed up their bags and they moved. They created new towns. They moved to the suburbs. They moved to the country. They bought land, uh, bought cheap land, built a nice big, big mansion. And they just pretended like all of that chaos in the city wasn't happening. They just hit. They just ran away. But the argument that this black service member is making is is basically telling white people, you can run, but you can't hide. And when you think about it, that's true today. If you're a conservative, where do you go to hide from critical race theory? You can't go into the military because it's in the military. You can't go into business because it's in the in business. You really can't even hide from it by starting your own business. There is virtually no profession and no entertainment where you can go where you can hide from critical race theory. He asks the question, where does this go? Where does this lead to? He writes, to be perfectly clear, the path we are on as a country leads to fratricidal and genocidal warfare. By fratricidal warfare is meant the killing of one's own kin, family members. So remember, instead of right now, it's just family members turning in their family members to go to prison for a long time and potentially get beaten by prison guards. The next step is just killing your family members if they storm the Capitol. It is also to despise and destroy fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, or neighbors and fellow countrymen who share family-like ties but who have adopted incompatible causes. Well, think about it. A BLM activist hates people who are against BLM activists, including their own family members, so we're already there. By genocidal warfare is meant the killing of people because of their race, religion, ethnicity, or other indelible group membership. And he points out that civil wars are typically a lot more brutal and a lot more bloody than wars against another nation because the ideology is involved. If you just fight in another country, you're not fighting the people. You're fighting essentially the government who are using their people as pawns. If you're fighting your neighbors over ideology, well, you can, you can show no quarter because there is no way to surrender because you're part of the same country points out the conflict in the 90s between the Bosnian Muslims and the Croats. And he quotes a, a Bosnian. He says, uh, she said, we always lived together and got along well. What is happening now has been created by something stronger than us. A researcher found that what that this madness and this accompanying civil war nearly always takes people by surprise. Survey research conducted in Yugoslavia during the mid-1990s found that only 7% of respondents believed that the country would break up. Noel Malcolm in 1998 summarized these observations, quote, what comes across most strongly from the personal histories of the Bosnian war is the sense of bewilderment most people felt. The outbreak of the war took them by surprise and the transformation of neighbors into, in, in, into enemies seemed to have no basis in their previous experience. Their favorite metaphor was that of a whirlwind that had come out of nowhere and blew their lives apart. And think about the millions of Americans who had, uh, let's say millions of white Americans who had black friends before the George Floyd death. They're not friends anymore. In fact, they're bitter enemies. Think of all the family members who got along just fine before George Floyd's death and the subsequent Black Lives Matter riots who never had any problems. They loved one another. Now they hate one another. And this is, I think, of neighbors, you know, lifelong childhood friends, um, you know, former high school uh, classmates 
who were who never had any problem with politics because they never really cared enough about it. Now they hate each other's guts. And if given the opportunity, they would turn their former friends and family members over to the police to be arrested and put away in prison just out of spite. This leads to genocide. This leads to fratricide. Think of what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now. It's not just a matter – the thing that makes the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict different from past conflicts, because in the past it was just Israel against Hamas. Now it's Israelis against one another. In the streets in Israel proper, you have Palestinians and Israelis beating each other in the streets, fighting each other, uh, knocking each other's car windows out, kind of like we had last year. And this is the reason why, if this is not stopped, this is where we're headed. We're headed toward fratricide and a potential genocide. I'm pretty sure somebody once said something along those lines that uh, a house divided against itself, something, something. We all know that quote. And it's true. It has been said before that uh, America has beaten so many foreign enemies, not a single one could even come close to actually toppling America from outside. Only from within could you possibly destroy America and through this domestic instability by turning Americans against each other could America finally come crashing down on itself, just like the Roman Empire. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. This has been episode 21. Tune in next week for episode 22. Be sure to keep updated with all of our latest content at righttakepodcast.com and the page on which you can find a full list of all alternative social media sites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash contact. We'll talk to you next week, guys.